Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Driving value that matters on car, home and travel insurance. Now that's sound. Well, author Anne Enright walked up a hill and came back down with the idea for a book brewing inside her. That's the simple version. Of course, the reality was something that took several years and many, many walks up and down that same hill. The book is called The Wren, The Wren. And I'm delighted to say that Anne Enright joins me now. Morning, Anne. Good morning. How are you? I do love that story, though, that during lockdown, you found yourself walking up and down Kleine Hill every day. What did you find there? Uh, well, I found that it, that by the time you came down Kalani Hill, you'd forgotten what was <laughs> concerning you. Um, but it was that spring of 2020. It was that amazing still April weather when the world ended, you know, or they, the wor- we didn't know what was going to happen in this amazing state of uncertainty. So I was really more and more fixated, I think, on the spring, the sap rising, the blossom coming, the ferns unfurling in the woodland. I was getting kind of lyrical and sappy by my standards. I was also going home and reading Irish poetry, which is the kind of thing that happens in a you know, global pandemic um, and reading about little dead birds from the 9th century and 12th century and going, oh my God, somebody paused to write a poem about this tiny little dead bird um, so many hundreds of years ago. So it was an immensely poignant time. It felt very significant and it was also very freeing as a writer because the market had disappeared, the readers had disappeared, the bookshops were closed, everything was a disaster. So Actually, that felt a bit like when I was in my early 20s, when I just wrote for no reason and didn't know where it was going to go. Well, I suppose I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm more or less creative anyway. <laughs> I suppose it. what it actually did was it gathered a sense of significance. So a, a sense of moment. And you do need that if you're going to write, I suppose. You have to say this means something or I have a sense of meaning that I have to convey in some way or capture in some way on the page. So, yeah, it did. It made me feel uh, adolescent again, passionate again, I suppose. Worried is too small a word for what was going on. And how did, I suppose, those walks at that time give rise to the characters and to the shape of the novel, The Wren, The Wren. Well, I was working with a character called Carmel, um, who sort of walked into my head. She was a very tough minded uh, individual. And so between the, the high lyricism of the woodland and Kalini Hill and the views and the poetry and this tough minded character, those were the two kind of poles of the book. So that's you, you don't start with an idea. You start with a contradiction or a problem or an opposition. You'd start with two different things. So Carmel had a father who wrote poetry and he was called Phil. And I was writing Phil's poetry for him. And I was kind of... uh, Carmel being so tough-minded was also good for the time. Carmel is a character who has, uh, has no imagination or people tell her she has no imagination. And that worked because if you imagined things in those days, then you would imagine too much because it was really one foot in front of the other, so... She was she was good for the time. So it was a while before I realised that we needed some third element in it. And uh, I decided that it was time that Carmel got pregnant. <laughs> it's one of the better things you can do on a Tuesday is make your character pregnant. Uh, about a year into the writing, Nell arrived. And Nell is the third voice in the book. She's Carmel's child. And of course, once again, you write these fantastic mother-daughter relationships 
You like writing about those, don't you? I find myself back writing them again and I say, OK, here we go. Well, you know, maybe they'll weather it one more time. Yeah. I mean, there's no father. Carmel, because Phil, her poet father, walked out in the family in order to become a better poet and to, you know, uh, to to be himself in the largest sense of the word um, and be, be, be the great writer or a wonderful writer. So Carmel decided she would have her child on her own. So there it is again. It's a kind of mother child dyad. It's not it's not a triangle. There's no father in the in the mix. So it's just the two of them. So that drama of separation and closeness uh, plays out through the book. Yeah. And and that that's a really key problem. How are we close to people? and How do we get away from them? And yeah, I really like Carmen in a way because she's very practical. I mean, you say in a way she has no imagination, but she's also a real survivor, isn't she? Totally a survivor. So, I mean, I I, I, I like writing characters that people have a bit of push me, pull you about, that they like aspects or identify with aspects of. Uh, But you always want a character, you you always want your reader to pull back at some stage and say, no, don't, don't, don't go that far with it now. That's too far. But Carmel is a kind of Irish survivor. And she's tough the way mothers used to be tough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she's a get over it sort of person. Maybe no bad thing. Well, a little bit, a little bit. It certainly gets her. It certainly keeps her child safe. Um, it certainly makes a place for her amazing abiding love for her child to kind of be. Um, but I think she's a slightly tragic figure as well. Mm. A little bit. But she's she was very she was very determined, Carmel. There was nothing I could do with her. Very headstrong. <laughs> nothing I could do with Nell either, who is does nothing she's told from from day one in the book. And yet between them, there is an awful lot of love between them, isn't it? Yes. Despite the gaps, for instance, they're at odds on the imagination thing. They've got very different stances on Phil, the poet, which is, of course, Carmel's dad and Nell's granddad. But there's still loads of love between them. There is loads of love. Um, the 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 worrying thing is that love doesn't always fix it. So um, Nell at one stage says, wonders why they can't save each other because they're both in need of saving and they both love each other absolutely. But there is a stage where that's not actually enough. Nell goes off and has her adventures and blunders around, a bit like Phil, her grandfather, in a poetic way and enters into a doomed relationship um, or what used to be poetically known as a doomed relationship is now known as an abusive relationship. Um, And those changes in language and in insight are also key to the book. And also, I get a feeling reading this, but I could be wrong, that you're having a bit of a pop at the way we, maybe in Ireland, that we've always set male writers up on a bit of a pedestal. Phil the Poet, he's talented, but he abandons people, he abandons his responsibility and he shows petty jealousy. Oh, well, yes. Well, writers are never jealous because they're beautiful <laughs> human beings. Um, so I had to, that was a big reach, making him jealous. Uh, however, actually, most of the Irish poets I know are lovely people, the male and female. It doesn't it doesn't make you a monster in the way that art can make people monstrous. The thing about the poetry is poetry is a reach for something beautiful and fine in mm. Phil's head, but it comes from a very lowly and impoverished place. So when we get to hear from Phil, he grew up a little like Paddy Kavanagh in a very small thatched cottage, the kind of thing that we now kind of turn into a postcard event, mm. but was actually if that, those families lived in those conditions now, you'd be calling social services, basically. So we can see it through new eyes, how 
how that ennobling thing of poetry was actually it wasn't gilding something awful, but it was a reach out of out of desperation mm. from difficult and lowly beginnings. Have you found though, since you based Phil on you know on this this poet, this type of character who banded, abandons his responsibilities, that people are saying, "Who's this based on, Anne? Which poet in Ireland is this based on?" Yeah, well, they do. So they can they can they can do that all they like because that's what Irish people do. They say, <laughs> "Who are you talking about now?" And you say, "Well, I'm actually ma- I made that up." You wrote poetry for this book. Phil's words are your words, obviously. What was it like writing poetry? I mean, you're a brilliant writer, but did you suffer from imposter syndrome saying, I'm now a poet? Yeah, well, that was a hoot. Because, I, I mean, I wrote what looked like a poem. It looked like a poem. And so I thought, well, this isn't a poem because I'm not a poet. And usually if somebody says I'm not a writer, I said, well, you typed out that. That makes you a writer. So I, I, I reached out to a couple of poets that I know, Jane Clark and Jessica Trainer, And I basically said, is this a poem? And the answer was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. Let, let's call it a duck. And maybe, you know, he would punctuate differently or maybe there's a bit too many syllables. You can just kind of... Uh, Maybe you can trim it down a bit. But poetry nowadays is all about less, 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 less. But that's kind of what I do in my prose anyway. It was just a bit more distilled. Um, But I did think that there was some extra magic in there that I would have to conjure out of uh, of thin air. And I didn't quite know how to do that. I did. Well, I was a fake. I was faking. I was being Phil. (laughs) Meaning Phil himself? Yes, Phil himself. Phil, I, I mean, the poems were very difficult to write, but Phil also found them difficult. So I was, I, I realised uh, uh, that was fine. But reading them, to me, lots of them seemed like very good poems. I mean, what's to say you're not a poet? Exactly. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a, you know, I could point to a few bits. They're not as thrilling or as easy or as blessed as some of the, of the lovely poetry that's real poets do. So you don't see yourself as the new Paul Muldoon? Um, I, wouldn't da- I wouldn't dream of it. I wouldn't dare. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but you deal with violence in relationships. And I think you said in a recent interview, Anne, that it was hard to read that part when you were doing the audio version. Was it hard? If so, why? And was it hard to write? Um There's a wellspring of violence in the book that is in Phil's life. And in Phil's life, there's quite an intense and cheerful uh, relationship uh, with violence. There's a lot of violence in the air that isn't called out. Um, And then in Carmel's generation, Phil goes around hitting them all if he gets a bad review in in the Saturday newspaper. And that violence is kind of comical. It's like if you get in the way, it's your own fault. And it doesn't carry a lot of meaning uh, at the time. And it's just like the weather. Um, By the time it comes to Nell's generation, uh, the violence that happens in the ordinary kind of kitchen in in that section of the book is terrible. It's small, but it's Mm -hmm. terrible. And it's an absolute rupture and a betrayal of, of the relationship. So I was interested in... That movement, which I think is a is a movement towards a more positive way of living, actually, and a better better way of thinking about these things. But how just banal and also comical violence was seen up to fairly recently in Irish houses, mm, which is dreadful. Uh, well, we well when it comes to the point, which it does in the book, 
uh, where it's with characters we care about and who mm. care about each other, then it tr- we truly see how terrible it is. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I had to read that bit for the audiobook and it took about a million takes. I, I found it, you know, I write a lot of things that are taboo. There's a lot of sex scenes in my work and all <laughs> kinds of things that you, you might think would be difficult. And I don't sail through them, but I'm more or less OK with them. But I know that I'm hitting some real nerve where I cannot actually read it myself. Why is that? You know, people write books that are full of slaughter and thrillers full of murder and corpses and shootings and speculative fiction where the planet is invaded by aliens. And nobody says you're very dark. OK, mm. so if I write a small, it's, this isn't a cruelty, this scene, but I am interested also in small cruelties. And those to me are terrible because they're ordinary. Now, there's a lot of humour in this book in case people think it's all serious. There are those sentences of yours that are so funny, so sharp. Do you find yourself and maybe with your female friends that your humour is sharper because as you've got a bit older, you've learned not to give so much of a damn? Well, actually, the humour that was around in my mother's generation with all these women who had, you know, who had a lot of children, not always, you know, in their control, how many children they had um, and were really hard at work. The labour of looking and care, looking after older generations, the whole thing. uh, They were kind of funny. They were bleak in what (laughs) they could say. They were quite acerbic about men. So, yeah, that that. That is, I suppose, a female style of humour or it's not a literary style of humour, is it? I don't know, it's all about tone. How do you teach that, I suppose, to younger women who haven't yet learned the joy of that? Not black humour, but just humour and not and not giving as much as a, of a damn as they do. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd actually distinguish between public or official discourse where young people want to sound as serious as they feel and... Uh, having the bounce where you see young people falling around the place laughing with great ease the way we always did. So, yeah, I mean, if they, they if they have something serious, they want to, to they want to be taken seriously. They also have more platforms now in which to think aloud. Um, and some of it is less humorful than others. Probably hard to write. I mean, as the professor of creative writing. Yeah. In UCD, is it? When you teach people, or can you teach people actually how to write, but also, is it really hard to write humour? I teach people how to punctuate. And um, because punctuating is like dancing. So if you're putting a comma in there, you're landing on the floor and you're <laughs> dancing off into the rest of your sentence. It's about it, punctuation is the structure of your thought. And it's, a, uh, yeah, and it's, it's how you dance. That's what I teach. A lot, of the, a lot of the time I'm saying to people, you already have it. Mm. Like... They're doing something I did with the poetry, thinking that what they have isn't good enough to be what, 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 what they want it to be. So they just improve it then, you know, just make it that bit better. Are you still going up and down Kalani Hill? And are you already planning your next book? And do you allow your brain rest when you've written a book? Like, do you say, I'm just going to leave my mind blank now for a while? So you're, you're, I, there's a lot of stupid stuff involved in producing a book. It's not all glorious writing, which I really, really like doing, I have to say. I love just sitting there with the text and with my story and trying to bring it along. Um, it's like dreaming. It's just a fantastic way to spend your day. And the hours do fly by and you do forget where you are. And it's all kind of hard, but it's all lovely. Then you have to edit the book, re-edit the book, 
edit the book another time, write pieces for websites and go and be interviewed and all the rest of it. So it, it turns into um, a, a, a sales exercise, I suppose. You want to get it into people's hands and you want people to read it. Are you already thinking about your next book? I had a little thought. Yeah. <laughs> a big thought, a little no, thought? No, a little thought. What you have is a mood. You just say, oh yeah, that mood is a bit of a book. As I let you go, do you feel, do you feel in a way that you now have a charmed life and that, as I said, there could be people listening who really want to be a writer, but either it hasn't worked out or they just hasn't happened yet. Do you feel lucky that you actually are a writer and a successful writer? Well, yes, I, I totally. I can't believe I'm still here. I can't believe that this is like my 10th book or whatever it is and that it's still I'm still getting published. Um, I'm really glad that I'm not writing books to please people and I'm writing the book mm. that needs to be written, that I'm still able to stick close to my my true inspiration in the book, that I don't have to write something just to to hustle an idea out there or to, to sell. It's a great book, The Wren, The Wren. I loved reading it. Congrats on all your success, Anne. It's called The Wren, The Wren. It's published by Jonathan Kate. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to me today. Thanks, Miriam.